today on episode number 135 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Sarah Rose Cavanaugh shares about the spark of learning, energizing the college classroom with the science of emotion. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Sarah Rose Cavanaugh. She is currently on the faculty at Assumption College, where she directs the Laboratory for Cognitive and Affective Science. She also serves as an Associate Director for Grants and Research in the Center for Teaching Excellence. Her teaching focuses on emotion, motivation, and neuroscience. Sarah's research considers whether the strategies people choose to regulate their emotions and the degree to which they successfully accomplish this regulation can predict trajectories of psychological functioning over time. Sarah's book, The Spark of Learning, Energizing the College Classroom with the Science of Emotion, is part of James Lang's series on teaching and learning in higher education. Sarah, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. I told you I read your book on an airplane and it was a wonderful treat (laughs) for me. And it's always hard whenever I get a chance to read the author's books before they come on the show because there's so much I'm excited to talk to you about. Let's just start out with, could you share a little bit about why you decided to write a book about emotion? Where did that come from? Uh, Well, actually, I am an emotion scientist by trade. I am rather new to faculty development and the teaching and learning pedagogy literature. And so my research and interests have always been in emotion. And James Lang, who is the editor of the series that my book came out in, approached me about writing a book. And so I started thinking about teaching and emotion in teaching was the natural uh, approach for me to take. And is it something that you always saw showing up in your classroom because that was your background? And and I guess an extension to that is what has been other faculty who don't have that expertise's reaction to this topic? Well, I think that I had always thought about emotion and the choices I made in terms of the activities and assignments and how to frame a lot of what I do in the classroom. And it was sort of a realization that that was the case uh, as I started looking at the literature and the reason why you would make those choices, I realized that I had been doing that all along. And in terms of reactions, I think that some I've gotten a lot of warm reactions. When I do encounter skepticism, it's usually around this idea that thinking a lot about student engagement, and we had talked about this, you and I briefly before, is thinking about student entertainment. And I sometimes encounter kind of a knee-jerk reaction to thinking about emotions in the classroom as in, I'm not there to be an entertainer. I'm there to help students learn. And as I'm sure we'll get to in the rest of our discussion, 
I feel that caring about student emotions and caring about student engagement is in some ways the first step, uh, that if they're not caring about the material and aren't motivated to learn, then it almost doesn't matter what anything else you do. You need to encounter that first step and master that before you can challenge them into greater heights of learning. That reminds me so much of the quote that you used from Elaine Fox, which Mm -hmm. when she says emotions are at the heart of what it means to be human. Why does that resonate with you? (laughs) Yeah, why does it resonate with you so much? Well, I think that emotions really evolved to prioritize and inform our priorities, that they push us toward things that are important uh, and healthy and good for survival, and they push us away from things that are the opposite. And they also tag information as important to remember. And so I think that in our deepest relationships and in mentoring and in learning, all of all of the realms of our life, really, emotions inform that which is important to us. And, and in doing so, really defines our humanity. And what are some of the ways that you've found that emotions enhance learning that you personally have found to be most powerful in your teaching? And feel free to give any examples mm-hmm. from your own classes. Right, sure. And I think I'll start with the science of it. And this is really the core idea, I think, that I argue in the book is that if we look at learning and we break down what you need in order to learn something new, you need focused attention, you need successful memory consolidation, you need to store it in your memory stores and then retrieve it, and you need to be motivated to do those two things. And we know from all of emotion science that emotions grab our attention, that they enhance memory, that memory for emotional versus neutral material is one of the most reliable findings in memory research and that emotions also mobilize motivation. And so the components of learning are all tapped into by emotion. And, and so thinking about that as you design your classes and, and your assignments and all the rest is really important. And I think that in terms of specific examples, I talk a lot in the book about Reinhard Peckrun's control value theory of academic emotions. And he talks about the fact that you can maximize student learning if you give them control, if you give them autonomy and make them feel like they have their own choices and that they are guiding their learning. And also if you maximize the value or the purpose that they see in their material. And I think always thinking about you know, giving students autonomy uh, in terms of choices on um, you know, giving them a choice of assignments or a choice of essay questions, giving them choices in terms of how to shape what kind of presentation or paper they're going to be writing is going to maximize that autonomy. And I try to do that in my own classes. And Then in terms of value, I think one of the easiest things in order to maximize value is to think about what relevance the material might have for students' personal lives, for their longer-term careers, or a more transcendent purpose. Angela Duckworth has some great studies on highlighting transcendent purpose of learning, how that learning is going to contribute to making the world a better place. Any of those types of value will motivate and mobilize student efforts. Can you give an example either from your teaching or from one of the many faculty I know you've coached just in terms Mm -hmm. of this choice of assignments or choice of essays, just a specific example of that? Sure. I think that 
in the book and in an essay I wrote for Vitae, I talked about in my own experience as a student, rather, in my own experience as a teacher, a professor I had at Boston University. She shaped our entire semester around the concept of choice, and we had to do three assignments that would make a portfolio uh, that would then be what was graded for our final grade. And we could write papers, we could do poster sessions, we could conduct case studies or interviews. It was a developmental psychology course. And we could do almost anything. (laughs) And I was uh, a little alarmed at that as a student and a little anxious. But once I got through that and over that hump of anxiety, it really was some of the best learning experiences that I had that I could craft my own education in a way. Do you get the concern about assessment when you start bringing up the potential for giving students more choice? You know, how do I build, do I build a rubric for every choice that's out there? Or or what what, what sort of guidance do you give in terms of thinking about assessment as we give more autonomy to our students? Right, that's a great point. And I, as a professor, would probably shy away from that approach that I had Mm -hmm. as a student. Um, That sounds a little too loose for me. And for the grading rubric reason and many other reasons. But I think allowing students to choose between, say, a presentation or a paper, and they can choose one that they're more passionate about, that they feel that they have better skills for. I think also, even as simply, you know, a kind of a small change would be on on exams, giving a choice of essays uh, so that students, and I talk a lot in the book about reducing anxiety as well, and this would help with this, they could choose between two out of three essays so that there isn't that chance that you just somehow missed a batch of material or didn't realize that it was important to the professor and didn't study it at all. And then you get to your final exam and it's 20 points out of your final exam grade. Instead, having, you know, choose two of these three essays that are all important is a really small way that you could maximize choice. Yeah, and especially as oftentimes the essay questions might reinforce or or ask them to demonstrate the same kind of learning outcomes then to give them that choice. It sounds really good. Perhaps even thinking about the context of the questions might be different and it might be a context that they're more familiar with and the Mm -hmm. one that they choose. Yeah, there's another set of tools I wanted to just mention the there's a long acronym, so forgive me, everyone. They're <laughs> called the Value Rubrics from the Association mm-hmm. of American Colleges and Universities, and VALUE stands for Valid Assessment of Learning in Undergraduate Education. And it's a whole collection of rubrics that you can use as they are, or you can customize them for yourselves, but they look at different types of skills that so many of us are trying to build in mm-hmm. undergraduate education, and they might be a good starter point if you were trying to give some choice and then measure things around critical thinking, creative thinking, written communication, oral communication, quantitative literacy, and so on and so forth. So that just, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes that'll be at teaching. Yeah, in, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, teachinginhighered.com slash 135 in case someone wants to explore that a little more. And we'd of course love to hear from you too if you're finding other ways to assess giving them all this freedom of choice. (laughs) Yeah, I was really inspired by the episode I recorded with an anthropologist, Mike Mm -hmm. Wesh, and he gives a lot of choice to his students. But I always leave those interviews going, oh, okay, but then how do I, you know, make it not quite this experimental? (laughs) How do I bring it down to something I can try, you know, something new for a new semester? So right, right. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit then about emotions as it relates to cognitive load. What can you tell us Mm -hmm. about that connection? 
Great. So cognitive load theory suggests that we have limited cognitive resources, which is something that we definitely know is true. Uh, we only have so much attention. Attention is like a small spotlight. We only have so much working memory. We can only hold on to so many bits of information uh, and currently work on it in our working memory. And so if those resources are limited at any moment in time, then students in the classroom, those resources are getting divided. They need to dedicate some resources to whatever, just processing what is being asked of them. So figuring out what the math problem is or uh, what supplies they need to conduct a lab. So some of it called intrinsic uh, resources, some of it's going to be directed just to doing that. And then a big chunk is going to be taken up by the process of learning, actually doing the learning. And then the third batch is going to be extraneous. And so they're text, getting texts in their pocket, uh, thinking about their evening coming up, you know, anything that's kind of distracting from the task at hand is also going to soak up some of these limited resources. And what emotions can do in the classroom is focus the student's engagement and their motivation so that they're dedicating more of their cognitive resources towards figuring out the problem and learning and fewer of their cognitive resources to those extraneous distractions. And if they're bored, if, uh, if they're bored, they're going to be spending more time on extraneous, you know, kind of things to distract them. And if they're highly anxious, then they're also going, that's going to soak up, their worries are going to soak up a lot of the resources. And so by reducing negative distracting emotions like boredom and anxiety and maximizing positive emotions like interest and curiosity, then we can hopefully have them direct more of their resources to learning, which is going to aid learning. Sometimes the critique that I will hear when we start talking about this is, is just the thought of to what extent are we as learners responsible for managing our own boredom, overcoming our own boredom. Mm -hmm. I can remember that I always valued that my mom sort of taught us how to never be bored because you could never be bored as long as you had a mind <laughs> to, you know, think about things and take you places as long mm -hmm. as there were books around, you know, that that sort of thing. What So what, how do you sort of balance that in your own thinking? How much of this is our students' responsibility? How much of it is the one who's facilitating the learning? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that our job as professors instructors or professors or whatever our role is, is to help students learn, give them every tool that they, that we can in order to help their learning. And so it doesn't bother me <laughs> to think about, you know, how can I maximally motivate my students? How can I reduce boredom and anxiety? I see that as part of my role. It's interesting, the question you ask, and because I have a grant-funded study from Davis Educational Foundation, and in that study, we're using iPads to give students a five-minute intervention at the beginning of the class to manage their boredom and anxiety and frustration, uh, to give them some tools from emotion science and, and from mindfulness in order to kind of attack those uh, negative emotions that will distract them during the process of learning. And the, our hope is that that will be kind of a blend of both. So we're giving them the tools, we're giving them the iPads and the information, but then they'll be doing the work of it. So we tell them about, you know, say how to approach 
anxiety with mindfulness. Um, but then during the class, our hope is that they will then apply those tools to reduce anxiety and that that will benefit learning. And so that is somewhat putting it more in the hands of the students, but also giving them some assistance and giving them some mentorship and how they might reduce their own boredom and anxiety. Yeah, one of the things, and by the way, I don't make the argument very well because I'm completely on board with you in case you can't tell. <laughs> it's so much more fun to teach that way too when you think about the yeah. possibilities because it's it's can, gives us more of a sense of purpose, but it's also more fun, right. I mean, to think about right, right. the kinds mm-hmm. of creative ways we could use our teaching to do those two things. But, it, but at any rate, I what I hear you saying is also, yes, let's help to give some tools to remove the boredom to lower Mm -hmm. the anxiety, but also to be expressing why it is we're doing what we're doing to be telling very transparent about what what our purpose is in that. And I suppose that may help a little bit remedy, you know, I'm not here. I wouldn't phrase it this way, but to be I'm not (laughs) here to entertain. That's not the the purpose I'm going to be expressing, but I'm going to be, you know, expressing that that these are the kinds of things that they could do to help in their own learning. Right. And I also think that it, and a lot of the ideas that I talk about in the book that I aren't my own, I took from other people who've done a lot of thinking about this, is that some of the best ways that we can motivate students is to push them really to the outskirts of their abilities, to really challenge them. And I think that this idea that anything that we do to motivate is going to necessarily be frivolous or entertainment really is contradicted by some of the actual techniques and that the best way to reduce boredom is to challenge that to make them apply every bit of their skill to the task at hand. And I don't think that that's entertainment. And I don't think that that's frivolous. I think that that is going to really help their learning. Yeah, that's a really good point to bring up just how much harder we do expect ourselves to work and expect our students to work mm-hmm. when, when we are challenging in that way. That's a, it's a wonderful point. It's not too challenging to sit in a lecture, especially one that's completely <laughs> one-sided. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about then the really key part toward the end of your book as you start talking about motivation, because this is so mm-hmm. key. I think that some of the ways to motivate students are, uh, we had already mentioned, so I won't spend too much time on this, but the value, um, highlighting the value of the material, how this material is going to benefit their personal lives, their career, or the world in general. I think that also some of the most fun I had researching the book was reading some books like Ian Leslie's Curious, and this was going to be on my recommendation list at the end, and Scott Barry Kaufman's Wired to Create. And these are more popular press books that uh, aren't designed for pedagogy, but yet are about how we take in information and how we're motivated to develop new skills and to seek out new information. And you know, some of the stuff that came from Ian Leslie's book that I include is uh, introducing puzzles and mysteries and posing, posing what you want the students to learn in the frame of, you know, either how it was a puzzle to the initial discoverers, or it is still a conflict and a, and a mystery in the field and kind of initiating them as partners and solving those puzzles and those mysteries, I think can really engage curiosity, can engage creativity and get the students motivated to figure it out because everybody loves, (laughs) everyone loves mysteries and puzzles and solving a problem. And then it also has that 
double-edged benefit of being rewarding when you get to the answer uh, or you feel like you've contributed a step toward understanding a mystery. I'm pretty sure that at that point, you also gave a couple of examples from James Lang's small teaching book. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really enjoyed, again, I think you mentioned it as does he talking about the importance of prediction and allowing mm-hmm. our students to predict what might happen. And I, yes. I, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. There's a wonderful episode by Planet Money, which talks about currency. And I can't remember which cur- which country, so I'm not even going to embarrass myself mm-hmm. enough to guess, but I'm, I'll put it in the show notes so people be able to find <laughs> it. But it was with a, a place where currency is, price stability is very unstable. And mm-hmm. kind of what the government there decided to do about it. And it's such a wonderful thing to just tell the first part of the story through this podcast. It's a very short one. Mm -hmm. All the episodes are only 15 or 16 minutes long. And then stop it right at the point that they're trying to decide what they're going to do and then let the students predict. And it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular to me that much of the time they don't come up with the quote unquote, what really happened, but they come up with some really creative ideas that mm-hmm. are really actually related to types of solutions around currency. It's just kind of neat to be able to tap into their natural intuition, because these are students who haven't taken right. economics classes before. And then occasionally, some students will actually land on what the country decided to do. It's really, really fun to engage yeah. that way. So it's talking about kind of the mystery. What are some other discipline specific examples that you've come across in terms of this creating the sense of mystery or prediction? Mm-hmm. I think one example of a great immersive way of introducing curiosity is Mark Karn's Minds on Fire and his approach of, that's the name of his book, and his approach is reacting to the past in which he has his students go through pretty formal role plays of historical events. And from the accounts that I've read of it, students are so motivated that they meet on weekends and they go outside the reading material for the class and really are engaged and motivated in a really wonderful way. Yeah, I had him back on the podcast all the way back on episode 21. So I know a lot of people haven't been listening that long. (laughs) That was October 30th, 2014. But I'll put a link to that in the show notes because he is Wonderful. so innovative and it's not, he was always quick to correct me. It's not just him. There's a whole mm-hmm. collection of all these professors from all over that are coming up with these role immersion games to play with students. Right, and, it's a big oh, movement. Yeah, it's incredible. That's amazing. Well, anything else you want to make sure and stress regarding the importance of motivation and thinking about how emotion connects with it? One thing that we didn't touch on too much, uh, and this may activate some of the (laughs) engagement entertainment critics, but that was really interesting to me as I did the research for the book, uh, is the idea that teaching is a performance profession. And I think it was Doug Lamaze who said that uh, originally, and that it does matter how much energy and enthusiasm and warmth and eye contact this... um, from multiple different sources of research, this idea of immediacy cues and and immediacy cues just being how in the present moment you are. So things, again, like gestures, uh, walking around the classroom, uh, making eye contact, that those, those things communicate how interested you are in the students and how interested you are and engaged in the task that you're doing together in the classroom. And 
that it does matter to think about those things. Uh, I think that we like to think that we're just brains who enter a classroom, but we're not. We're people and we're engaged in a social endeavor. And how much energy and thought and enthusiasm we put into our performance, really, I think has a lot of impact on student motivation and how much they learn. If that's an area that I'm particularly challenged by, Mm-hmm. And I, I, you're not saying this, but but I'm going to go ahead and say if you're a high critic of this, it might be something to think about that possibly <laughs> it is an area where you might think about your own professional development. Where's a good place mm-hmm. to start? Is it better to try to change something about my own performance or is it better to try to draw from sources that are out there to sort of bring them into the classroom or am I presenting you with a false dichotomy? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think I think I think both are could be great, and I think that two two things. One being that uh, you know, and this is not my idea. Again, have someone videotape you, and some some colleges offer this service so, so that you can watch yourself <laughs> and 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 then target certain behaviors that you think are portraying non immediacy. And I think the other uh, bit is again mindfulness. Um, And I find this, I have to do this in my own teaching. It's very easy, especially if you've taught a course, you know, many, many times to just kind of go on autopilot and not be present. And so to try to bring yourself back to the present moment and focus on the words that you're saying, the student that you're talking to, the information that you're trying to convey, focusing on mindfulness and bringing yourself to the present moment and recurringly bringing your attention back to that present moment, I think can introduce those immediacy cues, even if you're not consciously focused on the cues themselves. I'm cracking up at myself, Sarah, as you're describing this, (laughs) because I'm thinking about, okay, I want to ask her a question about, okay, so how early do I have to get to class in order to have mindfulness Mm -hmm. planned in advance? And I'm thinking, that's not what she's (laughs) describing. She's describing in the moment being mindful. And here I am trying to... It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard to do. I'm sitting here trying to map it out and say, okay, well, seven minutes before (laughs) class then. (laughs) Yeah. It's real. It's tough. All of these things are tough. In fact, videotaping, that's something I did when I first started my teaching career, which is not was not mm-hmm. in academia, I was teaching computer classes fresh out of college. And if I hadn't actually, that was just an audio recording of myself mm-hmm. that I would hear. And if I hadn't done that, I can only imagine how ingrained some of the really, really bad habits I had. And even now, still today, I always listen to the podcast episodes after they've been recorded, although we have a wonderful yeah. podcast editor, Andrew, who makes me sound better than <laughs> I do on my own. So he, he cleans it up perhaps a little too much for self-correction. But I but I am always mindful, too, of the kind of person I want to be and exploring these mm-hmm. experts such as yourself coming on the show and, and trying to get help you, you know, tell your stories in such wonderful ways like you do. What have I not asked you about this fabulous book that you wrote (laughs) that we should be sure and talk about before we get down into the recommendation segment? Um, I think the last thing would be, and I think you highlighted this already, but it's also uh, along with the performance bit and the purpose and value bit, the third recurring theme that came out of all the literature that I looked at was the idea of transparency and clarity. And that just being clear about your learning goals for the students, how the assignments fit into those learning goals, how they are going to be assessed, how each bit of the assessment leads to both their grade and your learning goals and how you're going to achieve those and assess those. 
I think is incredibly important. It reduces student anxiety. It makes them feel safer and more able to kind of jump in and get involved. And it also is one of those things that makes your semester a nicer, <laughs> smoother semester. If everything's laid out and transparent ahead of time, then uh, then you can focus more on the teaching and the things that you really love. I think this was something I probably didn't do as well even as recently as a couple of years ago, and that's doing this throughout the semester. My syllabi mm-hmm. have been complimented by people from near and far <laughs> in oh. terms of their transparency. <laughs> and, you know, organization has not been a challenge for me, but but really just mm-hmm. the need to, throughout so many emotional parts of the semester, to remind people why we're doing this and, right. and that we're in this together and how exciting it is to be. I mean, that to bring that emotion in around mm-hmm the whys. Why is this important? Why are we doing this? Why is it exciting? And and it's not yes. going to feel exciting throughout the entire semester <laughs> for any of us, but it really does help. And I find, not that I did that necessarily for course evaluations, but I have seen mm-hmm. a noticeable difference in the students able to recognize why I do the things that I do. And it comes out just they're, they're able to see it more when I'm transparent throughout the whole semester. Right. I love that. Yeah, well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give a recommendation or two. And mm-hmm. I I am laughing because I'm going to recommend something that someone else recommended on a podcast. It's all very meta. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love listening to the Political Gab Fest. And John Dickerson is one of the regular hosts on the Political Gab Fest. And he recommended this wonderful interview with someone who I don't know because it comes out of my discipline. But he's a mathematician, mm-hmm. Andrew Wiles. And he wrote this article Mm -hmm. called, What Does It Feel Like to Do Maths? And I'm going to be linking to it in the show notes. And one part of the interview really stuck out to me. Whoever was interviewing Andrew Wiles asks him, what do you do when you get stuck? And Wiles Mm -hmm. replies, I really think it's bad to have too good a memory if you want to be a mathematician. You need a slightly bad memory because you need to forget the way you approached a problem the previous time because it's a bit like evolution, DNA. You need to make a little mistake in the way you did it before so that you do something slightly different. And then that's what actually enables you to get around the problem. And I really liked that. Yeah, I liked it for a number of reasons. First of all, because I have a terrible memory. So I thought, oh, hooray, (laughs) let's celebrate that. But also just to be thinking about the importance of reflecting on one's own teaching and one's own Mm -hmm. sense of purpose. And just that, that when we're doing that regularly, but then also backing away from it for a while in terms of just forgetting about it for a moment, how that can actually enhance our ability to solve problems. I just really thought it was a great interview. And that's just one piece of it. It's, it's just very rich from start to finish. Oh, great. Sarah, what do so, you have to recommend? So mine, I already spoiled <laughs> a little bit, but I have an additional one. So I had mentioned Ian Leslie's Curious. It's a popular press book that is just about human beings drive to know things. And I just loved it. Uh, it's has a lot of research in it, uh, but he also is a beautiful writer. And also Scott Barry Kaufman and Carolyn Gregoire's Wired to Create, mm. uh, kind of a similar thing, but instead of with curiosity, with creativity and how we're driven to create. And then my final one is uh, Mary Helen Immordino Yang. And she recently published a series of essays called Emotions, Learning, and the Brain. And she really 
deserves all the credit <laughs> for this general idea of emotions and education. You know, she was really the pioneer in this work. Uh, and she's more of a neuroscientist doing the basic science of this work. And I kind of took a lot of her ideas. She's cited throughout my book and ran with them and tried to find practical applications. And then also looked at the pedagogical literature for applications and how people had actually tested some of these ideas in real classrooms. But her book is great. And she really launched us on this whole idea of emotions and education. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And it's so fun to talk to you after I feel like I know you because your book is written very transparently, just like you (laughs) recommend all of us in our teaching. You've taught me a lot. And I'm just so looking forward to a continued connection with you. And also thanks to James Lang for introducing us. I'm so glad to have had you on the show. Oh, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. What a pleasure it was getting to talk to Sarah. And I'm excited for those of you that will consider reading her book. It's a really good one. And it's a fairly fast read. And I just encourage you to pick it up if you have a chance. Thanks again for all of you who have been making comments and reviews about the show on your various podcast services. If you have yet to do that, I always try to twist your arm at this point in the show and just encourage you to help others discover the show. That's the way those algorithms help other people discover the show. And if you have yet to describe, subscribe to the weekly email that comes in your inbox just once a week with the show notes with links to all the things that we talk about. And this week will have a lot of good ones from Sarah that we talked about during the show. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And you'll also receive a copy of the free e-guide, the Ed Tech Essentials, 19 tools to help you be more productive and also help you facilitate learning through technology. Thanks so much for listening. And I will see you next time.